Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Sex in the Summer. I'm Mandy Clare, and it's um, 31st of August, and uh, we're very pleased to welcome you to another show in our series. Um, this evening, I've got with me, and I'm pleased to welcome Amy Souza, who's um, calling live from Washington in the United States. Um, Amy's, uh, she works from a sort of theatre psychology background, uh, supporting women, uh, and I think possibly children as well, to take an embodied awareness uh, approach to safe boundaries. And um, I would be happy to welcome Amy on screen. Hi, Amy. You okay? Yay. Hi, Mandy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Me too. Great to see you. Okay, so I thought tonight we could have um, a chat about your the work that you do the importance of boundaries and embodiment in terms of women and children in particular being able to keep themselves safe, um, particularly from anyone who might be inclined to predation um, and to exploit them. Um, and we could also perhaps look at that within the context of drag queen story time, because that's an area where I really got into some hot water recently as a counsellor when I sort of complained about us hosting Drag Queen Story Hour as one of our family entertainment um, shows within pride in the city of Chester which is where, near where I live so if we could and also I thought it would be interesting for us to have a look at the differences between the trajectory that we've taken within the UK in terms of trans ideology and where that's led to some of the extremes that it's led to here some of the things that we've done in our fight back and also to compare that with where you're at in the states because when I raised this issue and these concerns about drag queen story hour I got a whole bunch of criticisms and a lot of support as well, I have to say. Um, and one of the criticisms um, was, you know, well, some of those things that have happened in the States, that's just the States, that's not here. We're not heading in that direction. You know, this is this is an overblown concern. So do you wanna just begin by telling us a little bit about your work, why embodiment is important, maybe what embodiment actually is? Yeah, thank you. Um, Sure. So I guess I'll start with embodiment. <laughs> and this is just really uh, the awareness that we are our bodies. Uh, I think a lot of postmodernism tries to uh, focus on identity and it tries to uh, focus on uh, this notion that maybe we are a mind in inside a body. And what the notion of embodiment says is no, our, our primary awareness, our primary way of experiencing the world is through our embodiment. We are our bodies. Um, we're not a mind in a meat suit. Um, we're not. We're not in our bodies. We are our bodies, uh, and our. We are not separate in any way from our own embodiment. And our bodies are how we experience primary safeguarding. So just like any animal, humans are not different from any other animal in this way. Uh, our instincts are, are deeply connected to our embodied awareness. Uh, our sense perceptions are a way of keeping us safe. So um, by sense perceptions, I mean, you know, sight, sound, touch, taste, you know, so when I touch a hot pan, I don't have to think in my mind, oh, pull away, you're getting burned. My body responds to that hot pan. So those sensations, those, those primary sensations are there to keep me safe. Or just like when I, I bite into a piece of fruit, and it tastes good, that is a primary sensation uh, guiding me to something that is good for me, uh, whereas pain is a primary sensation uh, leading me away uh, from, from, from pain and keeping me safe. So our embodied awarenesses are a guidance system uh, where our sense perceptions are, are guiding us either towards or away um, that which is uh, safe or unsafe for us. So these primary awarenesses are very important. And this is one of the reasons, uh, if anyone who follows me on Twitter, you'll often see me using a Little Red Riding Hood meme when I talk about this. And I love the Little Red Riding Hood story. It's a story that dates back 
way back into the 1600s. Some people think even earlier than that. And one of the reasons it has been a lasting um, uh, cautionary tale for our culture is that it is a story all about embodied awareness, all about our primary instincts for self-protection. And Little Red Riding Hood goes through the process of having to learn these uh, in a sense. She learns them the hard way, but she does learn them. And in the original version, um, uh, she's eaten by the wolf the first time, but the second time the wolf comes and encounters her, uh, she catches him and puts him in a pot. But it's all about her sense perceptions that she has to learn how to pay attention to. She has to learn how to say what big eyes you have and what big ears you have and what big teeth you have. So it's all about her learning how to trust her instincts and trust her primary sense perceptions. So one of the reasons for me, this is important, of course, for safeguarding, uh, but these tools are really important because the world that we find ourselves in today, um, of course, I think we confront it in the identity issues that we see across global culture. But we also confront these issues in the way that uh, technology um, sets us up to, to practice a way of being. And I would say that, that both um, this kind of uh, on-screen life as well as identity issues, they are in their practice, they're teaching a value set. And that, that value set is one of, of disembodiment. Uh, dissociation. Uh, with the identity movement, we have a cognitive dissonance uh, because what I see in front of me is different than what I'm told I'm meant to say. You know, I, I see a man, but I'm meant to say it's a woman. So there's a cognitive dissonance. Um, it's also an objectification. So in identity movement, we see that um, my body becomes an object in which I present an image that I want the world to see. Uh, it's a hypersexualization. It's a compartmentalization where um, I, I break up my body into parts and I can just put different parts on me. I can add breasts or take away breasts and, and I'm just a collection of parts put all together. And then it's commodifying because I am buying and selling and trading these different body parts. So all of these things are a massive practice of dissociation. And it's a safeguarding failure because it takes us away uh, from our bodies. Whereas mm -hmm. the work that I try to do is about embodiment. It's about intuition, instincts, sense perceptions, uh, listening to those, these things. And this is how we learn to have appropriate boundaries, appropriate bodily autonomy, healthy emotional regulation and healthy uh, internal equilibrium. So it, it, these are things that build a healthy internal integrity uh, because I am then grounded in myself, in my own reality. I'm not a person who is seeking external validation. I instead have internal authority over my own mm. awarenesses. Mm. So this would be, because I'm thinking about this as something that becomes, it's something we can sometimes become more in touch with as we get older. It's part of our sort of maturing process. Yeah. Well, quite often we have to mess up quite a few times before we're in touch with that as women. We can fall into the trap, you know, traps of abusive relationships or whatever. Before we're older and we're in a position where what you feel is what you're going to say. And yeah. that sort of compatibility between what you feel and what you say becomes really, really, really important, not just for your safety, but for your sense of who you are and your confidence and your, and your place in the world sort of thing. So is it around that as well? Do you work with women in terms of you must kind of um, feel comfortable to have how you're feeling and what you're saying aligned with one another and not really felt pressurized to separate those two things out? in order to yeah. stay safe, in order to be yeah. whole and yeah. 
Yeah, I do. Um, a lot of the activities that I do are around just that. So I, I use uh, different uh, theater games and activities, which, you know, I like to call them games because it it just reminds you that this is just um, playing, that it's not so serious. <laughs> um, and it, it kind of allows women to um, depersonalize the experience because a lot of the reason we have these these sort of traps is because of past trauma um, and and past trauma also dissociates us from our, our feelings and our emotions and our our bodies uh, but um, depersonalizing is a little different than dissociating so dissociating is when we refuse to feel our feelings or or, or deny our feelings but when we we can use theater to depersonalize a little bit um, and it just creates space you know if we can make it into a game if we can make it into a character if we can give ourselves a little distance um, mm -hmm. from those things it allows us to witness uh, and it also allows us to feel through the emotion uh, in a way that maybe is not so scary. Uh, mm -hmm. Because sometimes, you know, talk therapies in a way, uh, you know, to ask you, like, tell me about your trauma, it can feel so confrontational uh, yeah. that it's that it can be hard to confront. Uh, mm -hmm. Not that there's, of course, there's use value in that. Um, but but some of the work that I do is a little uh, deliteralizing. So people can deliteralize themselves from their trauma in order to um, uh, uh, be a bit more witness to what they're going through uh, mm -hmm. rather than uh, maybe taking it uh, on as personally. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so just in com to compare um, where you're at within the States as compared to where, where we're at in the UK. So we've had various really positive things which have happened, which is why we're kind of called Turf Island. But we've had a little bit longer, perhaps, than you did in the States to look at this ideology and look at some of the impacts of it and try and gather ourselves, you know, as women, as well as some of the men that are supporting us, and as well as some of the gay men now, particularly that are organizing against trans ideology. Um, we've had, you know, the Maya Forstata ruling and Alison Bailey's ruling, which have helped clarify things within the workplace. But then at the same time as that, we recently had a woman who lost her tribunal, employment tribunal, um, it, within the NHS, our healthcare system. She'd objected to a bloke with a penis being naked in the changing room at work. Um, with a beard as well, not that that makes, it doesn't make much difference. It's, it's just a, a man in the women's changing space. And she lost that. She lost that tribunal, but I think she's going to appeal it. So although we've had like two steps forward, there's always at least one step back. It's what it feels like. It's a constant battle on lots and lots of different fronts. So we've had the cast review and we're looking at the closure of the Tavistock gender identity clinic now and remodeling of how we do support. And then through Suella Braveman making these, um, this uh, speech that she's made recently, clarifying some of the confusion. Hopefully, the pipeline that has been funneling children towards gender identity services and overshadowing some of the other issues that are really severe and serious issues in favour of uh, gender identity. It looks as if that is that pipeline is hopefully going to be addressed as well within schools and the kinds of ways that we're educating kids around gender and sex. Um, and we've had the prisons minister and sports minister taking a stand, you know, on behalf of women as well. But then on the other side of the coin, we've still got schools that are, they have the momentum of the training that they've had from Stonewall still in full force. So even though we've had ministers clarifying on some of these areas, councils and schools and, and you know, some of these other organisations, they're still not quite getting the message and they're still continuing to, to um, funnel children into this kind of gender reassignment pipeline. Um, so, but, but it has been interesting to me that one of the defences that is often said um, in sort of in defence of gender ideology and some of this stuff is that, well, you know, if you, if you use examples from America, like your recent example with um, Let Julie Swim, which you could tell us a bit more about in a minute, um, people say, oh, well, that's just in the States. That's not here. You know, people shouldn't overreact and um, pick extreme examples. Does it 
from your perspective, looking at where you are in the States now with prisons and women's rights and where things are with children and Drag Queen Story Hour, do you think that we are following in your footsteps still at the moment? Is it still entirely possible that we could end up where you are now? Um, what's your thoughts on it? And where are you at the moment? How do you feel it's it's going there? You know, I I had a great conversation with uh, Kara Dansky a few, uh, a few days ago about really some of the great wins that the UK has been having and how heartening it is. I mean, it's truly heartening uh, to see cases like Maya Forstatter's and Alison Bailey's and see um, uh, steps that are being made. It's been really impressive to see the work of Kelly J. Keene and her Speaker's Corners. Yeah. Uh, I think there is something really inspiring there. And I do feel that in the US, we have been inspired by the strides that are being made. Um, the cast review was also incredible. The shutting down of Tavistock was wonderful. The, these are, are really impressive things. And I think it, there's, I guess to go to the question specifically, there's there's a little bit of both. There's a little bit of like, you know, no one is, who, who is the leader? Are we following you? Are you following us? Um, but I do think that the more that we can make this about a global women's movement, um, a global voice coming together on this, I think the more that we use that to build solidarity globally, I think the stronger it will be. Um, in terms of our, for example, boots on the ground activism, you know, we in the United States have been doing a lot more Speakers Corners events ourselves. It's a little harder because it's a little harder to uh, gather women all at once together uh, because we're, we're a lot bigger country, of course. But it's been really inspiring. We've had them in Chicago. We've had them in Madison. Uh, we've had them in Philadelphia. We have ones in Pittsburgh coming up. We've had them in um, in in uh, uh, South Carolina. Uh, we have a bunch of events that we've done. We have a bunch more planned. I just did one in Washington, as you said, around Let Julie Swim. It's exciting to see women coming together, and that is really heartening. It is, of course, uh, challenging and disheartening to see the pushback that we get. It's it's upsetting to see, um, you know, with the Let Julie Swim event that we held here in Washington State in my little hometown of Fort Townsend, it was depressing to see um, really the, the anti-women's rights campaigners, the, these people are anti-free speech. Um, they wouldn't let women speak. Um, and that is very, um, it, it, that is still really upsetting to see, but what is encouraging is our continued willingness to show up. And I think we have to, um, we, we have to celebrate these wins with one another. You know, I really celebrate uh, the wins that you're having in the UK because ultimately they, they are our wins and we can use the different things that we see happening um, to create new precedents in our own countries. Our education system right now, uh, unfortunately Biden uh, has done a lot. Our president has done a lot to, uh, step back women's ability to fight sexism. Uh, sex is no longer a protected category in our laws. It has been replaced with the um, undefinable category of, of gender identity. This has also, I don't know if everyone knows that we have um, uh, uh, a ruling here uh, that was called Title IX. Uh, that was, yeah. Can you hear me? Sorry. Yes, I can. I've just had to log in from my phone. I had a problem with my internet connection. I'm back. <laughs> oh, I didn't. I no. I thought I wasn't sure if your producer just went to single screen, so I didn't. I didn't think it was a problem. 
Yeah, no, no, no. Sorry. Welcome back. <laughs> but uh, I was just getting into um, Title IX, which was created uh, in the 70s to uh, protect uh, women in schools, so women's sports and sex-based rights in schools. Um, this has been rewritten by our president. Uh, sex has been erased from this law and has been re re um, replaced with the category of gender identity. Mm -hmm. And uh, this this is a place where I feel like it scares me because it feels like a bit of it is a moving backwards. It doesn't just feel like moving backwards. It is moving backwards. And we're in a situation in our public schools here, which is highly concerning. Mm -hmm. uh, hopefully we can use the cast report and, and issues like the Tavistock to to push back against it and address it. But we're in a situation right now where instead of girls being able to say no they don't want boys in their locker room instead of girls being able to have the right of consent instead of girls being able to have boundaries around their bodies um, in our public school system right now girls are in a situation where if they say no i don't want this boy in here that girl could then be challenged mm -hmm. under title nine for sexual abuse or sexual harassment. And we are looking at a case right now uh, that happened in Wisconsin, where a boy uh, accurately sexed another boy who was his classmate. Um, he, he, you know, basically just used accurate sex pronouns to talk about this kid. Uh, and now he is being sued by the school under Title IX for sexual harassment because this boy you know, is calling himself a girl. And yes. what is so disturbing to me uh, is that, you know, and I always try to say this, what we, what we're doing when you when you accurately sex someone is, is doing something that's so easy. It's developmental. It's at the same developmental level as a two year old doing point and say, I, I point at what I see and I say what I see. So I, I'm pointing at a, a boy and I say, boy, um, you know, it's basic. It's a primary sex recognition is a primary instinct. It's, yes. it's an instinct that resides way back in the basal ganglia. And it, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a primary instinct for all animals. Um, and it happens, the, the recognition of it happens before any conscious analysis. You know, I don't have to analyze whether I see a boy or a girl in front of me or a man or a woman in front of me. It's a primal response. And this is also, so moving back to Julie, this is also what Julie did in, in um, this is what happened to her at the Y. So Julie is an 80 year old woman she was showering at the YMCA, which is, um, I think everyone knows what the YMCA is. It's, it's the Young Men's Christian Association. It's a, you know, it's usually, you know, they, they have uh, camps for kids and day schools and uh, kind of alternative gyms, you know. Um, and she was showering there. There's flimsy curtains. She's behind the shower. She's naked. She's just getting out of the pool. She hears a man's voice. Now, again, the, when you are naked and wet and you hear a man's voice, you react, you instinctually react. And that is what she did. And then when she peeked out from behind the curtain, there he was watching little girls get undressed to use the bathroom. And she responded as any um, parental figure would who wants to protect young girls and told this man to leave. She was then told by staff that she was being the bigot. She was banned from the pool for life. Yeah. But the reason this is, I mean, this is incredibly problematic because it's a safeguarding issue with men in a women's area, but it's, it's doubly problematic because women are being gaslit in the process. We are being told we no longer have authority to name our own sense perceptions of reality. And as I have said before, you know, to do this to women, and especially to do this to any woman who is a sexual assault survivor, to tell women that you cannot trust your own eyes and ears, and you cannot trust your own instincts for self-perception, mm. this is a kind of psychological abuse. It's it very dangerous. I absolutely agree. So I was looking at some of the statistics before,
because we get this all the time, don't we? Whenever we talk about this, I mean, we haven't got self ID. We haven't had the laws changed. We haven't had the um, was it an executive order that Biden signed? Yes. Yes. Um, Paradansky was explaining about the what was the difference between the legal side of things and the guidance, the policy guidance side of things. But it sounds like they marry up now. They're both doing the same. Thing. Well, it's it's given weight in the current administration. A new president could come in uh, and change it because the, the thing about executive orders is they can happen at that executive level without any other legislative processes. So it didn't have to go through a legislative process to, um, you know, become a bill, go in front of Congress, go in front of the House, get passed with a vote. Um, this is not something that was voted on uh, it's it was just passed, so an, another different pre president could come in and undo what he's done if that president wanted. Uh, yeah. But it, an, as long as Biden is president, it stands, and it will stand until another president um, repeals it. So. So you have self-ID effectively, even though it hasn't changed in, in the legislature, that's effectively what you've got and you can be criminalized for not going mm -hmm. along with that, like this woman mm -hmm. potentially could be. Um, we don't have that in the UK and people tell us all oh, not to panic. You know, that's not what we've got. You're over-egging this situation. But in actual fact, we do. It's happening by the back door in exactly the same way. So through policy within sort of each of the main institutions, whether it's the police or whether it's the prisons. Now we are managing to unravel some of that within the police, obviously within sports, but uh, sorry, within prison service, but within the police, that's about to change um, because we were doing a show the other week, which was about the, the search, intimate search and strip search guidelines. And that women who are uncomfortable with being strip searched by someone who's uh, a male who identifies as a woman, in complaining about that, if it's deemed that she has been transphobic and we haven't got any legal definition of what transphobic is, then she could be um, prosecuted for hate, you know, under hate crime legislation. So that is self-ID by default, even though it, it goes against what our law says. And the law says that we, it, you should be strip searched if you're going to be strip searched by someone who's of the same sex. And in schools, we've got self-ID. I mean, I've, I've been questioning our council about our school policies and the kind of guidance that we give to schools if they come to us asking difficult questions about kids' rights to have same-sex toilets, changing rooms, uh, dorms if they go away to sleep overnight, and whether we socially transition children in school, if we're always informing the parents before we do that. And when you read through the policy and the guidelines that we've got, it basically is... It's, it, it goes against the law. It goes against the guidance. Um, it is enforcing self-identification within the school environment against all of our policies and all of our good practice guidelines around safeguarding and everything else. And like you've said, it kind of really flies in the face of, of kids' ability to be able to be clear about what they name and what they see and what reality is and where they, they stand in that. Um, the gaslighting that you mention really... <laughs> That's a whole other topic as well, isn't it? But we've got we've got sort of um, all generation or a couple of generations of women who are currently being gaslit on a daily basis around this. And that in itself creates feelings of, I mean, I don't know how you feel, but when every day I feel stressed, I feel upset, I feel angry, I feel frustrated, I feel voiceless. I mean, <laughs> I just think there's so many of us that are in this position and some women keep quiet because they're worried about their job or that, you know, if they're involved in politics like I am, they're worried about their political career. So they're, they're feeling effectively silenced. But whether you speak out or not, there's this, this, this uh, feeling that we're just not being heard, we're not being taken seriously. And even when things haven't changed at the legislative level, things are changing anyway, you know, and we've got to constantly, constantly fight. Women have to be damaged, children have to be put at risk, things have to go wrong before each little piece is then clawed back into place. And while it's clawed back into place, 10 other things have happened that you now need to start working on. Any, any it's not a question, I'm sorry, but it's just a frustration <laughs> that I feel. I just, yeah, I just feel as if yeah. we're being put through psychological trauma through all of this and nobody's accounting for that and the impact that that has on women, on your family, on your kids, you know, and, and that kind of thing. So. Yeah, it, it has a massive impact. And if we look at, you know, I, I, I always try to differentiate. There's there's a lot of um, 
there's a lot of totalitarian tactics being used in this movement. Um, and these are tactics like um, there's forced teaming, you know, with the women's movement or with LGB movements, there's forced positivity. Um, this is like using language like inclusivity and affirmation uh, and, and um, you know, uh, authenticity and using these force uh, notions of force positivity. It's a using a lot of colorfulness, the mermaids and the rainbow flags and the unicorns. Um, but the force positivity, I, I always try to question into this, uh, you know, the inclusivity and the kindness and the, um, you know, the men, you know, men are being banned, you know, from women's sports, you know, men, men who claim um, special identities are being banned. Now, these value sets are not neutral. You know, the, the notion of inclusivity um, is not a neutral value set. Uh, inclusivity is great for when you are having a third grade birthday party and you invite the whole class. That, that's a great time for inclusivity. Um, when in spaces where women are naked and vulnerable, that is not a great time for inclusivity. That is a time for boundaries. So a lot of their language is, is leveraging one value over another. So inclusivity is, is being leveraged at the expense of boundary setting. Yeah. And these two things are really antithetical in the way that they're being used. And we also see inclusivity being used to, as in language, to dehumanize women, where mothers are being called uh, birthing bodies and yeah. chest feeders, and, and girls are being called menstruators and bleeders and cervix havers and vulva owners. This language is dehumanizing, it's objectifying, it's compartmentalizing. This is the language of dehumanization and dissociation. Mm -hmm. And it dissociates us from our wholeness. Mm -hmm. And this is why I'm, a, I'm very much what, what people call a hardliner. Um, I refuse to use the language, uh, gender jargon language, because it it's a cognitive dissonance. And I don't want to perpetuate this cognitive dissonance into the world. And I try to ground people in the reality that there are two developmental pathways. There's two possible pathways. Um, there's not a third or other different pathway. Even if we're talking about DSD conditions, there's two possible pathways with differences of development. You know, you can you can have developmental abnormalities, but there's not a third pathway. There's there's ova and there's sperm. There's not a third gamete pathway. So when I am talking about being a woman, I am talking about a, a fully embodied whole human being and, and to be on a specific developmental pathway that is constantly unfolding. It's, it's never not in the process of happening from birth until death. So a, being a woman or a girl is not it's not an I think. It's not a product. It's not a thing that I think about myself. It's not an identity that I hold about myself. It's not a concept that I hold about myself. Being a woman is a what. It is what I am physically experiencing. It's a developmental pathway that I am physically experiencing. So no matter, no matter the claims that a man makes about his identity, no matter um, the external things that a man does to um, make his body mimic uh, a woman's body, you know, a man can do certain mimicry, he can take hormones, he can get breast augmentations, um, a man can do things to externally uh, make his body mimic something that it's not. But no matter what a man does to his body, he is always experiencing the what. He is experiencing what it is like to be on a male developmental pathway. And it's very dehumanizing to, to take this embodiment and to 
um, reduce it to an image, to reduce it to a thing. It's very objectifying for men who have no idea what our physical developmental pathway is like to, to think of women as an objectified image that they can purchase their way into. Yeah. Again, this is about commodification. Yes. They are they think they can purchase their way into what a woman is, but being a woman is experiential and it's not a fixed experience. It's not one experience. It's a developmental pathway that continues to happen from birth until the day you die. Yeah. And no matter what a man does to his body externally, he is always experiencing a male developmental pathway until the day he dies. He has no, he has no way to get any closer or any further away from that developmental track that he's on. He's always on it. Mm -hmm. There's, there's no way for him to not experience it. And there's no way for him to experience the experience of being a woman. Yeah. So, um, whether or not, because the thing with the trans definition is it's such a huge umbrella. It covers so many things and not every, there isn't one single definition and there isn't a legal definition. It includes so many things. So it can include people who, you know, say that they have genuine gender dysphoria. It can include people that want to have surgery. It can include people that just want to do a little bit of it. It can include people who um, have AGP, which is like a sexual fetish. It can, be, can include people who just are into cross-dressing, but they don't necessarily feel like they were born in the wrong body or whatever. So we don't even really know. We're not talking about one defined thing or one agreed thing when we talk about trans. Um, but whatever it is, whatever, wherever people fall within that whole umbrella, the basic bottom line, as you've just sort of said, is that you cannot change from one sex to another. And it's really reductive to say that, to assume that one sex can ever feel and embody what it is to be a whole other sex and everything that goes with that. Um, and certainly sex as well is important because if we look at the statistics, 7.5% of adults who are aged between 18 to 74 years old have experienced sexual abuse before the age of 16. That's in England and Wales. Um, 75 to 82% of victims of sexual abuse were girls. Um, one in nine girls and one in 53 boys have experienced sexual abuse or thereabouts. Uh, the prevalence of paedophilia um, it's thought in the population is thought to be around 5% uh, in the male population thought to be around 5% of the male. It's quite a big proportion. Um, and about 2% of the Catholic clergy, according to the Pope, are paedophiles, which again is quite a big percentage. There are obviously important differences between males and females, boys and girls, men and women. We can't probably explain the reasons for all of those differences but they're important and they matter you know um, and that's why kind of when people roll out this accusation of you're mean or you're old-fashioned or whatever it is for having objections to things like drag queen story hour there are really really good reasons for why children need to be able to be really crystal clear about what the difference is between a man and a woman in order to yeah. be able to i mean like me you know with my kids and most mums, if they're honest, have probably said the same thing. If you get separated from me, look for a woman. Ideally, look for a woman who's got some children with her, but any woman. you know. And we say that for a reason. It's because we know that there are important differences. And the, and the sex um, sexual offending rates within prisons, as we talked about the other week on one of our other shows, show that even when people go through this process where they're calling themselves trans, those sexual offending patterns between men and women, males and females, don't change. They don't change. So it's kind of, it's shocking to me, really, that people can, when you when you say, look, there's an issue here with confusing children about what a man and a woman is and not allowing them to be honest and not being age appropriate about when we introduce ideas about sort of gender confusion and things like that. It's shocking to me that political, what's seen as political correctness and being um, progressive or whatever, um, is seen as more important than children's ability to keep themselves safe in a world where sexual abuse doesn't happen equally across the two sexes. Yeah, you know, it's it's very dangerous that we've allowed this ideology to uh, come up in this way. Are you hearing a crackle from me? I can't, your mic. Um, you try to slip in the camera and see if it's... We just had okay. some interference on 
Okay, I thought I heard a crackle. Anyway, um, you know, it's very dangerous uh, to allow these laws to pass on the basis of self-declaration. Um, defining our developmental pathways is very easy. It's very easy to come up with a discrete definition of what is a man and what is a woman. It's very easy, just as easy as it is to come up with a discrete definition of, you know, uh, sexes for, for other mammals or other animals for that matter. Um, these have discrete definitions. However, that term trans has zero discrete definition. Uh, the term gender identity has zero discrete definition. Um, these things are undefinable. And I have actually even often asked the question, if you are saying that the term man is an identity, that the term woman is an identity, what is the discrete definition of man identity and how is it distinctly different from woman identity? No one will answer this question. I have asked this question as often as Helen Stanlin has asked her question. I ask it all the time and there is, no one will give me a response because to answer um, the question of what is woman identity or man identity, if someone is saying that these things are identity categories rather than biological realities, is to admit the inherent regressive sexism at the heart of this ideology. It is rooted in sexism. And that is one of the things that I always try to say, that one of the things that is happening in this identity movement is that sexism itself is falling out of public and political consciousness. And the statistics that you just said are very important. They're very important for safeguarding. In his book, The Gift of Fear, Gavin De Becker speaks about this very clearly. Now to note that men are more likely to be sexual predators is not to say that this behavior is natural to men. No one is saying that, but it is to say that those who do this crime are vastly the majority men. The FBI and the Ministry of Justice both report on this statistic that over 99%, over, over 99% of all rapes are committed by men. And the vast majority of the victims of crimes of sexual violence are women and children. And this is why safeguarding is still important. So the word sexism is still very important when it comes to sex-based crimes. Uh, this is not an issue of, you know, I'm not saying, you know, I know that everyone is going to say not all men. And I agree, not all men do this crime, but the majority of people who do the crime are men. This is not a problem that women seem to have. Um, it's not a problem that women could physically do um, even if they wanted to, because women do not have the strength to overpower most men. Uh, so this is a crime that disproportionately is committed by one sex class and it disproportionately affects the other sex class. So to deny sexism, um, it, to deny sex itself is sexism and to deny sex itself puts women and children at risk. And Gavin De Becker says the exact same thing in The Gift of Fear that you just said that you told your children. He says in The Gift of Fear, and this is a man who worked for the FBI, he has protected members of the U.S. Congress. He's protected members of the CIA. He has um, worked on major celebrity stalking cases. And he says the same thing. If your child is lost, tell them to look for a woman with children or any woman, because statistically women are much safer than men and it's harder to trust. But kids need to learn. I mean, another thing he says in The Gift of Fear is kids need to learn um, how to trust strangers. You are going to have to interact with strangers in your life and you need to know who to trust, but you cannot learn healthy trust. You cannot learn healthy boundaries. You cannot learn healthy bodily autonomy when you are dissociated. You can't tell kids to trust their instincts and at the same time, tell them they have no way of telling who is a man and a woman. 
so that you can't do both. You can't say, hey, trust your instincts for self-protection and also say, you will never know who a man and a woman is. And that's, that's why I have that quote that I come back to, which is, um, you know, any movement that preaches to women and children to trust what the strange man tells you about his identity before trusting your own instincts, that's predatory. That, that's a predatory movement. There is no good reason to teach that to kids. Yeah. So with Drag Queen Story Hour, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've got a lot of reasons why I why I object to it. Um, you know, it's mimicry. It's mimicry and it's overly sexualized mimicry of women. It's putting that right in the faces of children. And it's also, um, yeah, so it blurs the line really about between adult entertainment and child ent entertainment. Because even if that person is offering something which is they're just reading a story, they're not saying anything particularly sexual, they're still dressed in an overly sexualized way. They've often got like larger breasts. They've got loads and loads of makeup on. They've got really short dress on. One of them in this country was twerking, showing, encouraging kids how to twerk. I know one of them in the States had kids lying on top of him on the floor, um, you know, and even if they're not doing that, I mean, one of, the, one of the kids had asked one of them in the UK, you know, are you a girl or a boy? Because they were obviously confused because there's this overly made up, overly sexualized guy in, in, in the dress. Uh, with a beard, possibly, I don't know. Um, and his answer was um, that his, he, you know, what's my outfit? You know, the, the, but he sort of identified himself as the same as the outfit was. I mean, other objections from people have towards me have been, well, it's, it's transphobic. You know, this is all about inclusion and about helping children to be more inclusive of um, trans people or people who are gay. But the thing is, is that, Drag queens aren't representing trans people in any case anyway. Drag isn't trans. You know, most people who are trans, well, not all people, but, but the people who are less fetishy and who are more sort of gender confused who are trans are looking to blend in. They're not looking to stand out and be overly hypersexualized. So it's kind of like every which way these objections come from, they don't make sense. And yet, there doesn't seem to be an answer that will satisfy people that want to try and defend this around children. I mean, so that, I mean, they're just some of my concerns and objections. I think it's completely inappropriate. I think it confuses kids. I know Stephanie Davis Arai from uh, Transgender Trend has said that there's something on her website, which was written by um, an expert who said that until the age of seven, children aren't really clear about what the difference are, is between girls and boys, which one they fit in with. Um, and it's developmentally inappropriate to confuse them further before they've even got that straight in their head in terms of their own brain development. And that's sort of around about the age of seven. So that for all sorts of reasons, it really concerns me in terms of safeguarding. But it's disrespectful to women, I think, as well. And it's sexist. How about you? How, how's it going there with drag queens? Yeah. I, I very much agree with your assessment here. Um, it's, it's, it's a problem of uh, confusion. It's, so it's a problem of sex confusion. Uh, and, and, and also it's a problem of early childhood sexualization. So um, anyone who does work on child safeguarding, um, who does work on, you know, mandated reporting or who has looked at, um, you know, uh, a lot of what happens in child sexual abuse in general, um, early childhood sexualization, children do not have, children are not little adults. Children are children. They are innocent. They are still learning to understand their bodies. They are still exploring their bodies. And to project adult sexual content into the mind of a child is to project something onto their bodies that they are too young to process. And kids who have been, you know, this, it's a tool. I know no one wants us to say the word groomer anymore, but it is a grooming tool. It's a specific grooming tool to introduce kids to adult sexual content because it um, desensitizes them and dissociates them from their own bodies. They do not have the capacity to process that sexual content. You know, we don't, 
We don't introduce children to porn stars. We don't introduce children to strippers or exotic dancers. We don't introduce children even to burlesque dancers. You know, we don't introduce kids to drag. This is adult sexual content. And I don't... <laughs> It's like, I don't know what where these adult minds are. I, I came of age in New York City. Um, I, I became an adult in New York City. I, um, you know, I came up in the theater. I'm very familiar with drag culture. Uh, I, I've, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the West and East Village. Drag culture uh, is associated with sexual promiscuity, with with drugs. Um, you know, it does have a lot of playfulness. It has a lot of theatricality to it. But this is adult content, and and the clubs that these men are a part of are saturated with these things. These are not wholesome places. These are adult places. You know, and and to to introduce we have to you know a question that i've seen asked is why do adult performers want to be around kids i would not want any hypersexualized performer around kids why i don't want a hypersexualized woman around kids. I wouldn't want a woman um, with sexually revealing clothing and hyper contoured makeup to be reading in front of my kids. I would not want that. Um, this is not appropriate for kids. This is not wholesome. You know, kids are innocent and we need to preserve the innocence of children. Um, unlike what Alok says, <laughs> kids are not kinky. Kids do not, um, kids who are prepubescent do not have those feelings or associations. And to put those associations on to kids um, constitutes a kind of abuse because they do not have a way to process this information. And we know that kids who are exposed to early sexual content um, have problems often of promiscuity, um, it, it programs them to basically be available to further predation, um, and adult inappropriate touch. These things are not appropriate. And it's, it's not, it's, it kills me that people act like it's subversive to say so. This is not a subversive statement. This is, you know, look at all of the, the early childhood psychologists, the, you know, the, the Winnicott's and the, um, I'm just going to try to think of some others, but, but this is, this is, this is very basic information. Anyone who has gone through a, a mandated reporter training, anyone who has gone through training uh, on how to deal with, um, uh, 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 child psychology and child sexual abuse will have this background to know that early childhood sexualization is a problem. It's a, it's a huge problem. And, and it, it doesn't help kids have good bodily autonomy. Mm, absolutely. So I'm just thinking about some of the, because, you know, we had the rainbow dildo monkey butt man in the UK. We were fortunate with him. Uh, we had the twerk one. We had um, the green dress one. He was one who came to Chester near us. And then I think they were blocked next time um, because there were complaints um, because he'd referred on one of his websites or his Twitter to women as receptacles of fluid or something along something really gross along those lines and children could easily have found that you know people who'd gone to see him as a drag queen performer could have easily found that information about him on Twitter there was another one with a rainbow umbrella behind him and um, the, he, he tweeted love has no age which is a really established, well-known paedophile um, justification slogan. Um, and then there was another one who was also performed and been welcomed by the council here locally in Chester who threatened to dox a woman online because he didn't like something that she'd said. And the picture of him um, is of him in a sort of a rainbow skin-tight catsuit and you can see the outline of his genitals in that catsuit. It's like, for God's sake. So, yeah, you know, one of the criticisms levelled at me was, well, 
you know, if you want to suggest that, um, you know, paedophilia, that drag, drag queen story hour is a magnet for paedophiles, then, you know, paedophilia also occurs within schools. So we're going to close down all schools. The answer is to just get better at safeguarding. But it's really, it's really looking at this realistically. We know that men will look for any um, opportunity to uh, access children, you know, access children. And we know that there's a big crossover between sort of, um, cross-dressing and paedophilia and you know sort of um sort of fetishy behaviors where people like to have an audience you know to their cross-dressing or whatever it is we know that there are huge crossovers there um, with all of those so that we're not saying that about the trans community because this isn't the trans community this is just blokes dressing as overly sexualized women and using uh, that as an excuse to kind of um, get close to children read stories to children in the name of inclusion inclusion of what we don't know, inclusion of drag queens, because that's all it's representing, you know, and it's just completely inappropriate. But we know that 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 particular opportunity is going to be a super magnet to people who have those kinds of motivations. And to say that out loud shouldn't be, it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone, as you said, who's got any kind of basic grounding in, in child safeguarding and how this works, you know, how, how this works and how men exploit those, those, uh, those opportunities um i because i'm on my phone because my um, internet connection died on my laptop i can't easily see all of the questions in the chat can you still see me amy if i scroll through i can see you yes you can okay yes um so let's see what questions we've got i'm just looking through there's loads and loads of comments um so Atcha john has said are you reactionary or is there a fuller outlook from which you arrive? He says, I'm hearing you, though where the ideas where the ideas of yours have developed from would be cool to know. So I know you've mentioned before about um, um, the book, uh, Women Who Run With The Wolves. Is that is that part of the background to where you're coming at your philosophy of how people can keep themselves safe, how, why boundaries are important, why embodiment is important? Has that influenced your kind of approach to how you work with women? Um, yeah, I love that book because that, that book is all about listening to our instincts and listening to our intuition. That, that's, that is absolutely a grounding book for me. And I am, uh, I'm having an upcoming, uh, class series on that, that anyone can find out about. Uh, I have currently, I have a Wednesday night class, but I will be putting up a Sunday morning class so I can catch people in the UK as well. Um, that is coming up the week of September 14th, but I will also add to Acha John, um, you know, my, my response to this uh, is not reactionary. It's, it's grounded in my own material reality. Uh, I have background in psychology that influences some of my thinking on this, but I would say my thinking is my own and my thinking comes from my own embodiment. So my thinking is uh, grounded in my own physical reality experience in my own developmental process. Uh, and my background is also one great place to look is into phenomenology, uh, because phenomenology is a philosophy of embodiment. And it says that our primary awareness of the world. So unlike a Cartesian uh, mind-body dualism, uh, phenomenology is a little bit different than, uh, it kind of critiques um, that Cartesian um, uh, mind-body dualism or the Kantian uh, mind is a machine. Uh, phenomenology says that our primary way that we experience the world is through our embodiment. So I need to, I, I, I sort of, we, we wake up as humans and we find ourselves in our bodies having physical sensations through our bodies. So we wake up in the world and we are situated. We are our bodies and we are in relationship to the world around us. And all of the information that flows into us, that comes to us, is through our primary awarenesses of our physical 
physiological sensations. So what I see, what I hear, what I taste, what I physically experience, these, this is the primary way that information about the world comes to me. So I'm, I wake up, I'm in my body, I am my body, and I am in relationship to the world around me. And this primary awareness of embodiment comes before any cognitive analysis that I have about my environment. So for example, in the case of Julie um, being naked, hearing a man's voice, what she has, what, what that was, was an instinctual response. She heard a man's voice. She responded. That was instinctual. That was primary. That was an embodied response before she had any mental analysis about what kind of man this was, what was going on, who was this. She had a physical response. Uh, phenomenology also says there is nothing to conceptualize or think about or know without our primary experience of being embodied. And you can see for yourself that this holds true because without myself and the world around me, there would be no concepts to create. All of the concepts that we've created as human beings, all of the vast sciences and philosophies that we've created as human beings um, can only be spoken about because we are primarily situated in a physical material universe in which we are embodied. You know, everything, all of our philosophies and sciences and things that we have and, and um, uh, conceptualize about so juicily are because we're primarily situated here. If we were I don't know, nebulous blobs in a nebulous form, uh, not in an embodied universe, I don't know. I mean, I have no way of knowing what that would be like um, because we 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 are primarily situated here having this experience. So that's that's where my backgrounding comes from. And then a lot of my other backgrounding comes from that book, Gavin De Becker, that I mentioned, who has the gift of fear and he has um, protecting the gift of fear. Um, and that book is all about safeguarding. It's also about trusting instincts. It's also about um, listening to those instincts. And one of the things I don't think I got into is that um, uh, Gavin De Becker says that predators are always looking for two things, and that is privacy and access. And so a lot of the, the situations that we are creating through this identity movement, we are creating privacy and access for predators. And we know all the different kinds of things that men have tried to gain privacy and access to women and kids. You know, they pretend to be doctors. They pretend to be lawyers. They pretend to be taxi drivers. They've pretended to be plumbers. They've pretended to be um, all kind priests. They pretended to be all kinds of things to gain privacy and access. And the reason that we have single sex spaces in the first place um, is for a little mnemonic um, that I like to say. Um, I heard it from other women before me, uh, a great woman online, Exilancic, uh, which is good men stay out so bad men stand out. And this is a rule that we have effectively lived by with some violations here and there, but we have effectively um, lived very well by this rule for the last, you know, century since we created these things, since, since our suffragette sisters fought for single-sex bathrooms and single-sex prisons in the first place. Um, you know, good men stay out, so bad men stand out. And, and anyone who had a violation could, you know, yell <laughs> into uh, the crowd and get someone to respond to that. And you know, this this is becoming um, very messed up because now the women who who cry out, there's a man in my space. You know, we are seen as the problem. We are seen as the harassers. We are seen as as the predators. You know, I, I have been told that I am the bully <laughs> um, to men because I want sex based facilities for myself and other women. You know, to me, this is very primary. This is very, this is a very neutral request. And it's just a request to keep 
the same protections that my foremothers fought for. Um, and I don't feel like I'm doing anything. I'm just protecting what we have had in place thus far. Um, and to me, this entire movement is, is a men's boundary violation movement, a men's sexual entitlement movement to, to gain access. And it's very dangerous. And to pretend it is very galling um, to me when I'm dealing with the other side that they pretend that there are no bad agents. Like it, it's just ridiculous to make that supposition. There, there are people who are taking advantage of this because all it takes, as we said, this word trans is undefinable, gender identity is undefinable, and all it takes is a self-declaration, nothing more. That is dangerous. Self, self-declaration and address that goes spinning. <laughs> Skirt, skirt goes spinning. Um, yeah, there's a point to be made about grooming as well, isn't there? Because even if that person who's doing their trans, uh, not trans, their drag queen story hour uh, performance is not a sexual predator and they're not a groomer, in eroding children's ability to be able to name what they see and um, name their feelings and be allowed to be comfortable, uncomfortable, you know, or whatever, in eroding those that, that clarity, they are opening that child up for a future predator to be able to access them that bit more easily. And those boundaries are being damaged sort of irreparably potentially and long term for those kids. So it's not even necessarily about who's in front of that child performing at that moment in time. It's what's happening to that child's boundaries. Um, and that that's a, that could be a permanent change with that child and leave them more open to abuse in the future. I, I can't. I honestly can't believe that people can't see it. And the thing about good men uh, stay out so that bad men stand out as well. Uh, that's similar sentiment to what I heard some of the men who were involved in the organisation called Gays Against Groomers, who keep getting serially kicked off Twitter. Um, but they do some amazing, these new Twitter spaces where you can go in and you can just listen or you can join in. You know, you can uh, uh, put your hand up to speak. Uh, I came across them on one of those. And um, God, they were absolutely brilliant. And they were saying, you know, there's a really good reason why. Because initially there was the assumptions made about people who are gay, that they are more likely to be predatory around children. And, you know, for that reason mainly, gay men have never really made a beeline for schools and places where children are to impose themselves in those spaces and they've always kept away from doing anything that could be perceived as dodgy around children's safeguarding boundaries and for people for drag queens to do this really brings the whole of that community in the spotlight for all the wrong reasons again potentially and they really object to it and they really don't agree you know with that being kind of done to potentially to their community as well um, so I think there's there's um, there's that angle on it too. Um, I think, well, we're at the top of the hour now. Uh, we've got loads and loads of comments. So when we go offline, maybe go on and have a read through and see if there's any that you want to answer on there once we're off air. Um, but I'd like to just say a huge thanks to you. I think we've had some problems with the sound quality. I think there's a problem with your mic or something like that. Um, unless it just sounded like that from here because my internet's dodgy tonight. But um, I just want to say thanks very much. And thank you to everybody who's joined us this evening um, for this chat and joined us um, to make comments and ask questions. Um, and could I ask people to please subscribe to the channel as well, to the YouTube channel and look up Amy's work. So we're going to put all of the links in the blurb underneath the video. Um, her website link will be there and her Twitter handle as well. Um, and yeah, that's it from us. I think this week, thank you so much, Amy. Thanks for coming on. Thank you again.